Yeah, get your Bibles to, to John chapter 9 if you aren't there yet. Uh, if you're confused as to why I'm wearing a shirt and tie, uh, my wife dressed me this morning. Um, so that shouldn't throw you too off guard. Actually, we have a memorial service following our gathering this morning, uh, Ted Glover's memorial service. And so I was told to wear a shirt and tie, uh, but not anything uh, too formal by them. So that's why I'm dressed up this way. But if you guys would uh, be in chapter, chapter 9 of the book of John, I've, while you're turning there, I want to read to you some, some news headlines uh, with, with some of the summary of the articles that they correspond to uh, from the last month. This is just the month of April. In the last three weeks, many Christians in Libya were arrested by an Islamist special operations military police unit and accused of apostasy and proselytizing and and still is in custody and will be in custody for an unknown amount of time for their faith. Another headline, a few days ago actually, in central India, a large crowd of people stood in the street and swore an oath to one another that pledged one another to not buy from or trade with any businesses owned by non-Hindus, specifically Christians. And earlier this month, in the month of April, parents in what is known as China's Jerusalem, uh, it's a city uh, that is stocked full of of actual Christians, there's a large community of Christians there, In this city, parents were asked to sign a form that required them to promise the following. First, to not hold to any religious belief. Second, to not participate in any religious activities. And third, to not propagate and disseminate religion in any locations, including their homes. In other words, they were being forced to not even tell their kids about their own faith. Many parents did not sign it and were arrested. As studies have actually come out recently that show that by the time you go to bed tonight, 15 Christians will die today for their faith in Jesus. It's not like, oh boy, I'm not going to get political. It's not like they died of COVID, right? They, They die... Because of their faith in Christ, literally, ten of them will be abducted. Like in in more than 70 countries today, Christians are killed, imprisoned, abducted, sexually assaulted, forced into marriage, or forced to leave their homes and even their own countries simply because they have sided with Jesus. I would say that We are a blessed nation to have such freedom in our faith, but it's growing more intense these days. The fire's getting a little bit more hot, is it not? The the, the pressure of persecution is building. You you, you may not receive uh, backlash for saying you follow Jesus, but if you talk about his ideas in any of the public square, uh, you, you might get screamed at. Or you might get screamed over. Have you seen that these days? That in order to not even hear truth, you'll have somebody sitting on the side just, ah, the whole time so that nobody else can hear what somebody else is saying. And you might be the one saying it. And while it can be a deeply painful thing, for us to experience any kind of hostility back for our faith in Jesus, what I want to put before you today is that there's something waiting on the other side of that experience that will make enduring anything worth it. There's something waiting for you on the other side of every second of pain because of your faith in Christ. There's a joy waiting there, and I'm going to tell you that his name is Jesus. And so what you might find today is is yourself getting a little bit more bold. You might find yourself being a little bit more okay with this idea of, of speaking what Jesus says about things 
and being okay with someone being like, ah, you bigot, or whatever colorful word they throw on the end of that sentence. Because that's exactly what we find in our story today. If you can remember what happened last week, this uh, the disciples with Jesus are walking and, and they find this man who had been born blind. And, and the question they asked was, well, who sinned? Who caused this, right? Was it the parent's sin or was it this man's sin that caused him to be born this way? And Jesus, like, it's neither. It's actually so, it's there so that the works of God can be done in his life. And that's what we kind of ended with yesterday. This idea that out of all the categories of suffering, there is a category of affliction in your life that is simply there because it's waiting for Jesus to show up. That's all it's there for. And so we spent some time in prayer based on that because we saw that Jesus really is this healing light of the world. I mean, this reality that this guy had been born blind and now he's sitting there like, yeah, I see you. Yeah, you, how many fingers am I holding up? I can see 10. Come on, give me something harder, right? Well, what's that over there? I don't know. I've never seen it before, but I see it. And tell me what it is. That's a tree. Oh, it's a tree. That's great. Now I know. He's healed. And he starts to tell people about it. The neighbors and the community are like, man, this is cool. I like this. And the story ends with confetti poppers and a mariachi band coming in, right? No, it doesn't. It actually takes a hard turn. It doesn't stop there. It gets harder. Now, one of the things I want to remind you is that Jesus is the main subject of this story. However, he's not the main character here because the main character ends up being this blind beggar who is healed by Jesus. Jesus kind of fades into the background of it and and this blind beggar healed is the foreground. And, and what we see in this text is that uh, if from verse 13 to verse, I put it at verse 34, there are three different interrogations done. Three different question and answer times. And so we have one interrogation that comes up with the Pharisees and the healed man. So the Jews in the city find this guy's healed, and they say, all right, well, let's, we got to take him to the leaders. We've got, give us some commentary on this. What's going on here, leaders? So the Pharisees ask the guy, well, how, how'd you do it? Like, how'd you get healed? And this blind guy says, well, the man called Jesus put mud on my eyes. I washed, and now I can see. Uh, I joked about it last week. Did you notice he didn't mention the spit? <laughs> I told you it would find its way out of there, right? But regardless, he tells them that this happened. Jesus did this and he's healed. And the Pharisees find out that they have in front of them this man who had been born blind and now he's healed. He can see them. And what do they do? They call in the mariachi band, right? No, no, they... Uh, they immediately start trying to find ways to discredit Jesus as a sinner, not from God. Why? Well, Scripture tells us because they think that he broke the Sabbath. I didn't mention it, but verse 14 says that the day that this happened was the Sabbath. And we've been in this kind of situation before, right? You remember that back in John chapter 5 with the man by the pool of, of Bethesda and Jesus comes in and heals him and it was on the Sabbath and the Jews all get up in arms about it. Why? Not because Jesus had broken laws that were found in this book in the Old Testament. That's what we found out there in John 5 and I'm just going to remind you of it here. You see, rabbis, Jewish leaders for centuries now had passed on something called the Mishnah. It's a, it was a, a guide for how to help people think about taking the Sabbath seriously, about how to follow its principles and guidelines according to Scripture, but they, they made their own rules up. And then not only that, but when they did that, they elevated it to the status of God's Word as well. And so if you were to look at the Old Testament, you wouldn't find any way that Jesus broke the Sabbath. But if you were to look at their law, he broke it two, two ways. First, one way would be 
that he healed someone. They had in their oral law, in the Mishnah, that you couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. Because apparently that's work. Not only that, this is where it gets really even more crazy. Among all the categories of different work that were prohibited by this Mishnah, one of them was kneading. K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. Like you're kneading dough. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And apparently, Jesus spitting into some dirt, picking it up, and putting it together as a mud breaks their law. It counts, he's kneading the dough. And so here they are, a man miraculously healed of blindness from birth, something that had never ever been done before, and they're like, hey, 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 hey. He kneaded the, the mud. Right? Like, and what's their conclusion? What's their conclusion about this? What do they say? Well, well, clearly, he can't be from God because he needed the mud. Well, it turns out that not every one of them is so dull because there's a division that breaks out. Some of them start saying, well, how can a sinful man do something so powerful? How can a sinful man do such a sign like this? And so there's a division among them, and so they just say, hey, blind, healed, God, what do we call you now? Healed, you're he- beggar, dude, what do you think about him? What do you think about him? And so this guy knows that, that, the, that nothing short of a powerful work of God had been done in his life by this man known as Jesus, who he had never met before today, and so he's he just thinks, well, he's at least got to be a prophet, right? He's got to be a prophet. This man sent from God. And he's not wrong at all, but obviously we know that's not all. He really is somebody who's sent from God. He has to be if he's able to do something like this. Well, then what's the, the, the religious people's response to this? In verse 18, what does it say? Did they believe him? No. No, they don't believe him at all. They think, I don't know, maybe he's, he's making up the whole thing. He's lying about the whole thing. Like, just think that through logically. Like, they think that he sat there begging for, what, 20, 30, 40 years, pretending to be blind just so he could pull off a fun little gotcha? Like, like trust me, dude. We're not the ones who lost out on that if that's what's happening, right? You're the one who spent the best years of your life doing that. It's just an insane theory. He's lying. So who do they call in then? Who's, who comes in? The parents. And here we have interrogation number two. The parents come on in. They come in and think about it. This is the first time, most likely, I think it's here, that the son sees his own parents. And it's, it's not in their home, it's in an interrogation before the public courts. And the parents confirm, yeah, that's our son. Yeah, he was, he was blind, but he's like, he's like, see, he, you're following my hand? How you do it? Son, what's going on? What happened, right? They don't have a clue how it happened. But they confirm that, yes, he's been healed. He was born blind. We remember those hard days when we were, uh, gr- we were parenting him when he was in his toddler years, and we couldn't figure out why he couldn't see what was in front of him until we found out he couldn't see. We remember those, and now that he's seeing, my goodness. Now, here's what's really cool. I'm guessing that some of you parents in here, isn't it just an awesome thing to be able to say that you have some kids that, yeah, they were one way and now they're entirely different and I know who done it. It's our Jesus, right? But the, he- the parents here, they, they kind of hesitate though. They, they don't really want to talk about how it happened or who done it. Why? Look at verse 22. What happens? What, what, what would happen? 
If anyone confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. Whoa. So they fear that. They don't want to get cast out. And so they say, well, our son's old enough. Let him testify. Let him speak for himself. Thanks for the love, mom and dad. But here's the thing. This puts the Jews between a rock and a hard place, right? They, they can't dispute the miracle. It's happened. It's clear. There's testimony corroborating. But at the same time, they're unwilling to acknowledge that Jesus is from God. Why? Because if they do, that would mean that Jesus' diagnosis of their spiritual hypocrisy and blindness would be true. And then it would require them to humble themselves before this man who had come from God. They don't want to do that. In fact, they don't want to do it so bad that they call the blind man back in. Interrogation number three, back in verse 24. Hey, come back in, man. Tell us the truth. We know this man called Jesus is a sinner. And then we get to one of the most powerful testimonies ever recorded in Scripture. Verse 25. The blind, healed man answered. Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. Oh, those sweet words. I'm going to do it. Will you sing it with me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see Amen So he says, the fullness of who Jesus is, I can't speak to, but here's what I do know. Here's what I can tell you. I was one way, now I'm different because of him. How many of you have a testimony like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, every believer should, right? Every believer does have a testimony like this. It's inherent to being born again as a new transformed creature, right? We start to be different. We start not to just simply act different or talk different or turn our radio dial to a different station. No, we start to be different. And this is this man's testimony. He's exclaiming it. He's sharing it. He's boldly telling about it. This fundamental evidence of his transformation to people. And all they're, again, trying to do is discount the very thing that happened in his life this day. The very thing that Jesus has done. And so they call him in in verse 26. Hey, hip, hip, come here. Tell us again what happened. No, tell us what you already told us. And the guy just starts to get frustrated. Verse 27, like, come on. I told you once already. Did, why didn't you, didn't you listen? Like, what are you trying to do here? Do, do you want to be his disciples too? And what's their response? No, you're his disciple. Can you hear the immature? I, I mean, I kind of made it immature, but I kind of see that when I see that. Because, you know, I play a game with my kids, right? We'll be at the dinner table. It's dessert time. We don't have ice cream every time. But, but for example, they say, hey, mom, could you get the ice cream scooper? And I just say to them, you're an ice cream scooper. And they say back, no, you're an ice cream scooper. And I go, oh, you got me. It's a game I play with an eight-year-old. But here, these Pharisees attempt to insult the man. No, you're a disciple of Jesus. Like, hey, isn't that like the best thing that we could be called? No, you're a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, I'll take that. Right? No shame there. I am unashamed of the gospel. And so what happens is, is this healed beggar, just after their response, starts to get a little bit more gumption, starts to grow a little bit more bold, he starts to even throw some sarcasm in his words, and all of that 
stemming from something that is uncommon these days, and apparently uncommon these people, is basic common sense. He just talks about it in a common sense kind of way. Verse 30 through 33, this man told them, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Common sense truth. If Jesus weren't from God, if he were a sinner, he couldn't have done something so miraculous that no one in history has ever done. Pretty logical argument, is it not? Well, instead of agreeing with the basic logic of common sense, these religious people are simply stung by the words and they fire back with, you could say, abuse. Verse 34, you were born entirely in sin. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. So you were born entirely in sin is a very demeaning, cruel way to refer back to this birth defect that this guy had been born with. As a, and sin was the reason for it. You were born entirely sin. You're steeped in it. And then they just throw him out. In fact, the very thing that the parents were afraid of is the very thing the son endures. They, they, they ban him from the synagogue, this local synagogue. And if you think about it, the synagogue was the place where it was where what everybody understood to be the place where if you want to go get to know God, that's where you go. And now he's cast out. They're thinking that they've cut him off from his relationship with God permanently. He's not allowed in anymore. He's cast out. They've cut off his access simply because he was willing to testify to common sense truth about his miraculous transformation, what God had truly done in his life. And in their attempt to cut him off from God, they had little realization that he had already met God and been changed by him. But it's at this point that I, I kind of want to pause and just offer some counsel, kind of summarizing where we're at in the story. This guy experiences this miracle of Jesus. He's healed this amazing grace from God. He was a blind beggar. Now he sees, and he's testifying about it. He's telling others about what's happened in his life. And those who don't want to hear of this grow increasingly hostile to the truth that's in his testimony. And all of that builds up to him being marginalized and cast out. He's rejected by them because of his testimony about how Jesus truly changed him. You know, I, I, I read through this and I, I got really convicted um, because um, I kept asking myself, really, have I ever in any way experienced any form of anything like this? And I started to look back and in my walk with Christ, I could very easily probably even with shame, tell you that I've hardly experienced any form of any kind of real rejection for my faith in Jesus or, of, or any kind of testifying about what he's done in my life. I've, I, I don't think I've ever experienced anybody say, well, you're an idiot. And so I started thinking about, well, why? Why, why haven't I ever endured something? I'm, it's like I'm not, I get to talk about Jesus every week. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, man, the last time that I was in an environment where I was with people who utterly disagreed with me was in high school. 
I thought about my life ever since graduating high school. In fact, my social circles in high school were, were quickly developed in my church family, so I really didn't have any connection with anybody at school. I go to college, go to Liberty, a Christian school where, yes, your faith will be built up, right? And then I graduate from Liberty, uh, the Christian environment there, and then I work at Liberty, and I also pastor part-time bivocationally at a church, so there's some more like-minded people. And then I uh, move up to Northeast Pennsylvania, and there I'm pastoring a church up there. More Christian, like-minded people. And I come here, more Christian, like-minded people. Everywhere that I've been in the last 15 years, I've been around only like-minded people. Distinctly Christian environments. In fact, um, like by God's grace, I'm a part of a family where Jesus isn't the debate. In fact, he's the one who guides our conversation. And I married into a family where Jesus isn't the debate. In fact, he's the Lord and Savior of that family too. So on, on any kind of family level and any kind of social level, I, I, I am not around people who disagree with my thoughts. Unless you do, I, and you might. And it'd be okay if you did, that's fine. I'm not God. But. but here I am looking at this text, looking at my own self and then thinking, man, I might not be in an environment like this, but I know almost all of you are. You might have, most likely, family members who don't share the same thoughts about Jesus that you do. You, you might go into work environments where you meet people who talk very differently. They use a little bit more colorful language than you do. They have a little bit more openness about their lifestyles that are kind of like, oh, you talk about? That's, that'd be something I wouldn't talk about, right? And, they, and in those environments, and then some of you have even experienced the pain of being thrown out of certain social circles like your friendship groups because you just keep saying what Jesus says. And they don't want to hear it. Like the th especially these days when he starts talking about like identity and he starts talking about marriage and about sexuality and about race and about love and about money. They will hate you for it and they'll scream at you or scream over you like I demonstrated earlier. And you guys are the ones in these environments experiencing the potential of different-mindedness. And you might have experienced some hostility for it. And what did Jesus say about that? He, he said you should expect it. He said that, that shouldn't be like a surprise to you. It shouldn't catch you off guard. Like, whoa, I never, Jesus said I should be comfortable, right? No, he never said that. We should expect this, which means it shouldn't make us insecure or depressed when it comes our way. Jesus says, we sh especially, we shouldn't even be surprised if the world hates us because he said the world hates him and, and we're following him, Right? Like, we, we should expect to have people mock and malign us. We should expect people to try to discount and to discredit us. And they'll do that by pointing to your life. Oh, you're not perfect. Look at what you did, right? You said you did that. Yeah, but God's grace is sufficient, right? We should expect people to revile and reject us. That's what Jesus tells us. And in fact, it's a, lot, it's a way that many of the, the, the church fathers lived. I, there's a story about John Wesley I came across. He was riding along a road one day when it dawned on him that three whole days had passed in which he had not suffered any persecution. Not a brick or an egg had been thrown at him for three whole days. You know what he did? He got alarmed. He stopped his horse and he exclaimed, can it be that I have sinned and am backslidden? And slipping from his horse, Wesley went down on his knees and began interceding with God to show him where, if any, there had been a fault. Now, a rough fellow on the other side of the hedge, hearing the prayer, looked across and recognized that preacher. 
I'll fix that Methodist preacher, he said, picking up a brick and tossing it over to him. It missed its mark and fell harmlessly beside John, whereupon Wesley leaped to his feet, joyfully exclaiming, thank God it's all right. I still have his presence. We should, as Christians, expect to have this in our lives. And if we don't, if we're not experiencing it in, in the minimal ways, like with name-calling and like people heatedly disagreeing, or if we're not experiencing it in the major ways where we're like going out change and shackles from a, from a gathering, like it may be because of a few different reasons. And, and the first reason is the reason why I haven't experienced it. So you've hidden away into like-minded echo chambers. An echo chamber is basically you say something and get repeated back to you. Social media algorithms are designed to keep you in your echo chamber. But it's easier there, isn't it? It's a lot more comfortable there to hide away in that space, isn't it? To never go out into a world that, that disagrees with you. And, and to possibly face rejection. Guys, I, 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 I've allowed it, right? I haven't intentionally done it, but I've passively f- done it. And, and pastors can have it so easy to hide away in this refuge. Because trust me, this is a refuge Don't get me wrong, I know that this is supposed to be the place where we are like-minded and we're safe to talk about it. And we love one another for it. But like when, when it comes to like talking about evangelism and engaging in the public square with reasonable, logical, true, good, right faith, how am I supposed to relate to you guys if this is all my social circle is. As part of our nature, as born-again believers, is that we are given an identity as ambassadors. It's part of our nature now. And if we hide away into the very nation that we're supposed to be representing, who are we ambassadoring to? No one. If I'm always around the people who agree with me, what kind of change can I affect? None. Right? The only way that we can be actual ambassadors is to be in the foreign nation or the different country that we're supposed to be representing our country to. And like, yes, we're supposed to be representing Jesus to ourselves to one another, but we're also supposed to be sent out and representing him to a world that needs him and needs his kingdom. And so, so you and I, we can't afford to hide away in this, in this beautiful thing called church family. We can't just simply refuge here. We've got to breach the door and get out into the world and testify to what happens when we're here and what happens among us. And yeah, we're, we're, we, we might find some rejection along the way. It might get really uncomfortable for us as we're out there. And they might reject us, but again, they aren't rejecting you. They're rejecting the Jesus in you. And so this is where I'm personally challenged by this text. It's like this guy, he could have just kind of like wimped out and been like, yeah, you can, whatever you want to say, I don't care. And just kind of hid away having experienced such an incredible thing, but never actually like telling anybody about it. 
No, this guy is in an environment where they are openly hostile and he stays in it and he speaks truth about Jesus. This is where I'm challenged today. I need to find ways to, to get around different-minded people. And maybe you do too. But maybe, maybe you're somebody who says, yeah, I'm around, I'm around like a different-minded people. I, I hear it all the time. I'm out in the world with, all the time in my work or in, in this, this place. And, and, and I'm with different-minded people all day in my job, right? And I'm not experiencing any re- rejection. I'm not experiencing any persecution. Now, <clears throat> there could be all sorts of reasons for that. Some of them good, some of them not. But I do think that one question does need to be asked as far as what a possible cause might be, and I'm trying to just relay this in love. The possibility is that your life and your words don't look and sound much like Jesus anyways. It could be that, that you just, I mean, what, I mean, if you never talk about Jesus, why would people say, well, what do you care about Jesus for? If you never testify about his work in your life, why, why would they ever have conflict with his work in your life? Like, that just doesn't work. I mean, one curious question that you should ask yourself is how many people who know you know that you follow Jesus? Like, how, how loud are you about it? I'm not asking you to be like that screaming person all the time. I'm just saying, like, introduce people to your Jesus. Like, and if your life doesn't even have any sort of difference to it that indicates any kind of transformation that's happened in your life, why would anybody be perplexed by your life? If you're, if you're just like everyone else. You know, what's so funny is, is that the, the cultural mantra these days is rebel, try to re- be rebel. You know what the rebellious thing is these days? Following Jesus. Like, why, why would they even ask you to explain what's different about your life if they can't see anything that's different about you? I mean, this guy had a clear change in his life. Something changed in his nature that then gave way to behavior and word change. And he starts getting kind of louder and louder and more courageous about it. And as he does, they revile him and they reject him. And maybe that's what scares you. Maybe you, you do have a desire to speak about your Jesus and, and how he's changed you and transformed you. And, and maybe your life really is really closely aligned with Jesus's, but you have the volume so low because you're afraid of this. And this is where I fit into. Maybe what scares you is that you can't emotionally handle people mocking you for loving Jesus or, 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 or being able to handle them getting hostile towards you because you agree with what Jesus has commanded about things and what he said and you've worked to align your life with his and so it keeps you quiet. It keeps you sheltered. Maybe that's where you're at. You're in the environment You're living for the Lord, but this scares you. Well, what if I told you that there's something that you will experience with God waiting for you on the other side of that rejection that will make every single moment of suffering persecution absolutely worth it? Because did you notice what happens after this man is cast out and cut off? Is he lost and the story just leaves him? No, the story doesn't stop there. Look at verse 35. Hour 
shepherd, our king, Jesus, heard that they had thrown the man out, and he went and found him. Did you notice that Jesus didn't keep this man from experiencing the pain of rejection? He didn't kind of intercede and go, oh, no, this is my guy. You guys don't have to say that to him. No, no, he's got to be comfortable. Keep him safe. No, he allows this man to experience rejection. And yet it's in that very rejection that Jesus seeks him out and finds him. Because Jesus will never cast out his own. He seeks out his own. Those who have been cast out, he seeks them out to bring them in. That's the inclination of his heart here. This is kind of like his nature of mercy and grace. He finds this man who had just been rejected by the people who should have been celebrating what God had done in his life. And what does Jesus do when he finds him? He invites him to believe. Verse 35. Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? That I may believe in him. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you now. I I believe, Lord, he said. And he prostrates himself before Jesus and worships him. Guys, I think this is the main thrust of what I believe Jesus is calling us to this morning. It is simply this, that the greatest enjoyments of Jesus himself are on the other side of rejection because of Jesus. Trust me, that won't preach. Because it's like, wait a minute. I don't like that last one. I'll take the first one without the second one. Can we have the first? But no, we see in this story that, that when we testify of the person, of the work of Jesus, and we experience the rejection for it, there we're going to find our Savior seeking us out, drawing us near to him, asking us if we believe in him, giving us such a close experience of him that we can't help but fall on our faces and say, yeah, yeah I knew it, Jesus. You are worthy of it all. I'll experience every kind of rejection on account of you if you are what I get on the other side of it. There's this Old Testament story that I referred to last week. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are in a foreign land around very not like-minded people. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, asks them, commands them to bow down to worship a statue that he made in his own image. And they stand, and they don't, and they testify of their God, Yahweh. And King Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage, and he turns up the heat on the furnace, and he pushes them in. And what does he do? He looks in, and he is shocked. Wait, wait, wait. We threw three in there, right? Yes, we did. Why is there another one in there who looks like the sons of the gods? It's because there was another in the fire. It was Jesus. You see, those three men, having experienced the fullness of rejection for their allegiance to God, are thrown into the fire of persecution. And there they find their God with them in the fire. They experienced the nearness to their God like never before while standing in the fires of persecution. And, and like, just think about it to its fullest end, right? Like, what if, for example, they reject you so much, they lop your head off, right? You're like, whoa, that's, that's like medieval age, Scott. You got, you, like, no, actually, that's happening over in Egypt these days for your faith in Jesus. Let's say they do that. The fullest expression of any kind of rejection you might experience for your faith in Jesus. Guess what happens? 
You get Jesus. Like they think they've taken you from your reward. No, no, no. They've, they've turned into the ushers at the door that say, no, come on in. You're going to meet Jesus. You get to experience the best, the highest, most joyful experience of the Lord your God. You're going to see him face to face on the other side of this. And there you will fall down on your face. And you'll sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. (laughs) What did you think Paul meant when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain? It's this. We get Jesus on the other side. And so my plea, I I am begging you, don't Make the mistake that I've made for the last 15 years. Don't hide away around just like-minded people. Be comfortable with your God and yourself enough so that when they come at you for you telling them about your faith, you're secure, you're okay. They can't stir you up because you're rooted on the word of God and who you are in him. I'm pleading with you today, go out and effect an incredible amount of change. This is where revival starts. It's when we're faithful enough to believe that he's worth experiencing that. And we trust him all the more. Surround yourself with people who don't think like you. Now, now, don't let them influence you to a degree. Go in there to be the influence and come back here and get influenced so you can go back out and be the influence and then come back and get, be influenced, right? But, but when you do and when you experience the sting of rejection, I promise you they're waiting for you on the other side will be your gentle friend, your mighty Savior and King, seeking you out and drawing you in and saying and asking, wow, you really do believe in me, don't you? And you'll fall down in your worship. And you'll be reassured again and again and again that every single moment, every single sting, fiery arrow was worth it all. Every pain, every sorrow, every time you feel rejection by your friends, by your coworkers, by your family, simply because you're standing firm in this truth and you're following his ways, there you'll find Jesus walking with you. Now, one of the things that we're going to be doing next Sunday. Um, in, the, in the theme of what we've experienced in John chapter 9, this man experiences this transformation, this miraculous transformation in his life, and he begins to testify about it. Even, even in the face of rejection. One of the things that we're going to do next Sunday We have a a fifth Sunday. It's a special service. Next Sunday, we're going to have a time for us to testify to one another about what God has done in our lives. And the theme of that testimony time will not be, look at me, look at what I've done. It's no, look at what he's done and look at who he is. And so we're going to have some special testimonies next Sunday. And yours might be one of them. If you would be willing to come and share it, please come thinking about, praying about how God has done something recently in your life. And we want to testify to his goodness next Sunday. Now, part of that might mean that, 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 that you, you want to come testify in a way of, of, of being baptized. We are more than ready to, to do that next week. If you're somebody who wants to be baptized and give testimony through the baptism waters of what God has done in your life, of how Jesus has saved you and healed you. But I also want to challenge you this week to, 
like, I actually want to dare you. I dare you to go testify about Jesus' work in your life to somebody who disagrees with you. Give it a shot. And when you feel the pain, take it to Jesus. And you'll find he's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how gentle and caring you are that when we, when we stand faithfully on the truth of your word in a world that has built itself on the shifting sands, I pray, Father, that we, not with arrogance or pride, but with humility, would speak truth in love to help people and invite people onto the rock of your word. That we would be able to testify again and again of all the things that you've done in our lives. Whether it's something that you just did this morning or it's something that you did years ago. May our stories and our songs of our testimonies of your grace in our life never grow old and never be quiet. May they grow in volume and in frequency as we sing and testify of the ways and the things that you've done in our lives, regardless of our circumstances, even in the face of people who would mock us or ridicule us or as simple as disagree with us. Because God, we ultimately want to get to know Jesus who will meet us on the other side of this rejection, of this persecution for our faith. But may we stand and take heart because ultimately we know that you have overcome the world. Give us courage, God. May we be an unashamed people, unashamed of the gospel because it's your power to save. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. But as you do, there's hopefully going to be some refreshments out there. I'd love to have you hang around and get to know one another because, you know, we're some pretty cool people. You know, it's nice to have some like-minded people to talk to and get to know better. So, so hang around, chill out. You don't got to go rush off to lunch too quickly. Um, but also, if you need prayer, if there's anything that you need encouragement in, maybe it's this very thing. I'd love to pray with you. Our prayer team would love to pray with you. We'll have, if we have some shepherds available, they can be available to pray with you as well. Just pray for courage and strength. But let me pray over you from 2 Corinthians 4. It says this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. May we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Be blessed.